Well, I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter, uh, chapter 2. Uh, we're continuing uh, our study of this wonderful book, uh, particularly uh, the first three chapters, which give to us a rich description of our once crucified, now glorified Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and His last words to the church. So we have been thinking a lot about the state of the church today, and we've been thinking about even our own church and the lessons that we need to learn from these inspired words, especially now that we have started into chapter 2 and are taking one at a time each of these seven letters addressed to seven very real uh, historical first century churches in Asia Minor. Uh, words from Jesus Christ, the head of the church, about various conditions that exist in the church and words that reveal his plan for the church. So in John's account of the Revelation, we have Jesus dictating these seven letters to seven churches, uh, strong words, as we've seen, from the Lord himself to these churches and about these churches, uh, and words that should and do cause us to consider what Jesus might have to say both positive and negative, uh, those things about perhaps faith community. Uh, and we, got a, we get a lot of help from these passages because in these seven letters, our Lord, uh, if you will, pays a pastoral visit to these seven different local churches and in each case sort of tailors a, a message fitted to that particular congregation in that place at that moment in history. So, so what is Jesus looking for when he comes to church? And these, uh, these seven letters provide, I think, a very comprehensive uh, answer for us. And my hope is that when we get through these uh, seven letters, that we'll have one final message that to sort of pull all of this together, because we've been picking up these, these um, uh, words of commendation and these words of censure and, and criticism uh, as we've gone along, but it will be, I think, fascinating for us to sort of, in hindsight, look back over each of them and sort of pull all that together and, and, together and really get a, a comprehensive description of what the Lord wants to, to be in His church, those characteristics that He wants to, to describe uh, and mark His, his people. So, so far, we, we've considered the first three of these seven letters. We've looked at the one from Christ to the church in Ephesus, the church that we said was busy falling out of love with Jesus, or a little shorter version would just be, this, is, this was the loveless church, the church that had the right message, the church that uh, was very careful with the gospel, uh, the church that had lots of activity going on, uh, but needed to repent and be revived in their love for Christ and, and their love for one another in the body of Christ. We also looked at the second letter, the one to the church in Smyrna. This was the suffering church. Uh, this was the church we said that was faithful in the jaws of death. The church that was feeling the pressure but pressing on in faith. The, the persecuted church that had been purged and purified because of this a time of affliction and, and suffering, which is what we said suffering causes it, the suffering and persecution uh, when the church faces that, it always leads to a, a, more, a more pure a bride, a more, a more pure fellowship. So this was the church under persecution. But through it all, they gave off the, the fragrant aroma of Christ. 
Uh, then last Sunday, we looked at the letter to the church in Pergamum, or we said, or possibly Pergamus, uh, the church that was willing to die for Christ, but not to deal with compromise. A church that was mixing truth with error, and, and a church that was catering to the world. And then today, we want to spend some time looking at the fourth letter in this series of royal letters, the one to the church in Thyatira. And what we have in this letter is, is a church that had essentially stopped practicing church discipline, or, or a church who gave up on guarding the purity of the church. Now, this was the church that was excelling in love and faith, but was winking at sin, a blatant sin. Uh, not, a, not a lot different from this one that we looked at last time, not much different from the church at Pergamos, but maybe you might say a little further down the road, literally and spiritually. So it's a real church, and there are some commendable things, as we'll see, but, it, but it's dangerous to go there at this point, the point of John receiving this message from the Lord while in exile. So let me just read the text for us. This is Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 18. He says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze, says this, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance, and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of her deeds." And I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your, de- to your deeds. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have Hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." As I mentioned the last few Sundays, the structure of these letters is very similar with some, some, uh, some minor differences. This one opens up much like the other three by giving us the location of the church and telling us something about the author, namely Jesus Christ. So it starts out there in verse 18 and says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write. So to the angel or or to the messenger, that is the one sent by the church in Thyatira, to go to the Apostle John, who is now taking this letter back to the church in his hometown. You remember, seven seven letters to seven different churches, each of them 
had a messenger there. The word, the word is uh, angelos, and it can be translated as angel and is translated that way in most English translations. But best maybe to think about that in terms of, of a messenger. And these messengers were taking back the letters to these seven churches that had been literally authored by Christ and penned by the Apostle John. By the Apostle John. And as they moved along through the seven churches, the man who delivered his letter would stay and the group would diminish from seven down to six, down to five, down to four, and so on. So one of these messengers, probably one of the elders or pastors from the church at Thyatira, is the one who gets this particular letter. And he says to the angel, to the messenger of the church in that city, write, The Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like burnished bronze. Again, as a way to sort of systematically work uh, through the passage and to kind of organize our thoughts, let's break this down into eight different ideas this morning. And we'll begin with the usual location of the church, the location of the church, which, of course, is the city of Thyatira. This was on the, the west, the sort of northwestern end of of uh, the whole Asia Minor uh, circle. It was, it was a small, uh, less significant town compared to the others on that postal route. In fact, the smallest of these seven cities, although it receives the longest of these seven messages. It stood on none of the Greek uh, trade routes, but upon the, what they would refer to as the lesser road between Pergamos and Sardis. And it derived its wealth from this uh, valley, the Lycus Valley, in which it rapidly became really a commercial center, but never a metropolis. So it's just sort of tucked away in this little chute that came down from the, there was an upper valley, and there was a lower valley, and then there was this, this uh, valley that ran north and south that connected those two, and that's where you had this particular city sort of uh, located. It was a city that had been established by one of the Persian rulers, Seleucus I. Uh, control of this particular area uh, went back and forth during the 300s and the 200s BC. And then during that time uh, is when Thyatira often functioned uh, as, you might say, a garrison, a, a, sort of a sort of an outpost, a protective station to keep Pergamum protected. So it was a smaller city without a very long history, but it was an important city because it served this protective function. And a city tied to Pergamos in such a close way that the status of Thyatira was the best measure of the power of Pergamos. However, Thyatira wasn't like Pergamos in that it's centered on emperor worship, but because it wasn't too far down the road, some of the idolatries that were present in Pergamos that we looked at last time some of those things were reflected there. There was a temple to Apollo uh, there, but it wasn't as grand as the one in Pergamos. There was a, a temple to the ancient Lydian sun god, Terimnos, in whose uh, honor the games in that particular city were held. Uh, there was a goddess associated with that Lydian sun god who, whose name was Bo- Boritin, uh, a deity of, of less importance. And then there was another temple at Thyatira to uh, a, a um, Sambethe is the name. It was, uh, and, and this particular 
shrine. Can you guys hear that? All right. God. So there were these, these festivals, and then there were these, these, these meals that were involved with your commitment to uh, being a part of the guilds. And then at the end of these feasts, there were these gross sort of uh, uh, immoral activities that would get underway. So we, 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 we try to get our minds around that a little bit of what, it, what were these guilds like. Of course, we think of modern day sort of uh, uh, unions, but not exactly like that. It was a much, much more serious issue than that. Steve Lawson actually makes this, this comment. He says it was like combining a labor union with a trade guild and a college fraternity all in one. And so to exit at any time before all of the activities were over would expose a person and lay a person open to ridicule and other forms of persecution. So you had these pagan feasts with which immoral practices were associated and and were held, and therefore the nature of the guilds was such that they were opposed to Christianity. And then you had the moral issue of whether Christians were justified in participation in such common meals with their associated activities. So these were, these were the major struggles, I think, going on in, in Thyatira. And the church there had some serious defects. Defects that were related to those at Pergamum, but far worse. Not only did the Christians lack zeal for godly discipline and sound doctrine, but they actually came to this point of obliging those who erred in these ways and condoned their errors. And that brings us to the identification of the author. The author, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he identifies himself to the church in this way. He says of himself that he is the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. So he is the Son of God, which is, which is more a title than a descriptive Uh, attribute, and it's a title that is used only here in the book of Revelation, although the Apostle John used it frequently in his gospel account and in his epistles. But it speaks of his deity, speaks of Christ's deity and the fact that he is the one who has been divinely sent and commissioned by God to implement God's purposes for his people. And the reiteration, the reiteration of these things is necessitated by the seriousness of this church's deviation from the true worship of Christ. So Christ reminds them, he says, I am the Son of God, which is also an allusion to Psalm chapter 2 and, and the reference to God's Son there, which, which makes sense in light of the use of Psalm 2 later in the message. And so he says, I am the Son of God and I am the one who has eyes like a flame of fire. Again, this points back to the last line of Revelation chapter 1, verse 14, and it speaks about Christ's piercing omniscience, the penetrating and omniscient gaze of Christ as he walks amidst the churches. Everything before him in full disclosure, nothing escaping his attention, nothing escaping his holy intelligence. In fact, I quoted from Matthew Henry before, but he makes this, I think it's a a great comment. He says, God not only sees men, but he sees through them, sees through them. That is to say, Jesus Christ exercises a prerogative of God as the Son of God in such a probing of the inner man and can only do so on the basis of his 
omniscience. So these are no ordinary eyes. These are the flaming, fiery eyes of the omniscient Christ who will examine both what people do and why they do it. And then Jesus makes this self-claim that his feet are like burnished bronze, also taking us back to Revelation chapter 1, but in verse 15, and it speaks of Christ's purifying judgment. So this is about Christ being the judge of sin. The reference to feet, often uh, a reference in, in the Scriptures to subjugation, uh, and, and bronze is particularly in the Old Testament, uh, often associated with judgment. And so you put these two things together, feet and bronze, and combined they speak of the fact that Jesus is going to judge and he's going to subdue sin. And he will do that inside the church and outside the church. So we'll, cut, we'll find out as we, if you were to read ahead into the, the uh, middle part of Revelation in those later chapters, Jesus, uh, it's very clear, will one day judge the nations. But what Christ seems to be focusing on in these letters is the fact that he is walking among the lampstands and his focus is on judging sin in the lives of his own people. Like purifying metal circulating among the churches, purging out all of the impurity, disciplining His people, calling His people to renewed obedience. And we need to be reminded that Christ will judge sin wherever He finds it. He is constantly weighing our churches. He is constantly measuring our ministries and assessing our actions. Christ cannot tolerate sin, especially in the church. Now let's move on to the commendation from Christ. The commendation from Christ. Verse 19, he says, I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. So like he's done in the previous letters, Jesus Before getting to the sobering warnings and the challenges and the rebukes, he first commends them, if at all possible. And to this church in Thyatira, he says that he knows two things. He knows the nature of their deeds, their works, as well as the number of them. So he knows their deeds, which is just sort of the the blanket statement. That's more of a general uh, statement. But the question is, what are the specific kinds? He knows their deeds, but what are the specific kinds of worthwhile qualities that Christ finds in this particular church? Well, he mentions four things, two which are inner, two which are, you might say, more abstract uh, qualities or motives, and then two which are outward fruits or manifestations of those inner qualities and motives. But you could pair them up this way. There is the inner quality of love, which is demonstrated in service. Uh, And then you have the inner quality of faith that is shown through perseverance or endurance of hardship imposed through persecution. So unlike Ephesus, Thyatira still has love, and Thyatira is distinguished among all seven churches as being the only one commended for both love and service. So they had a love for Christ... And they also had a love for others that was expressed through voluntary service and ministering to people's needs. That was one of the qualities that Christ 
uh, commended them for. But But they also had a strong faith in Christ. And they had a conviction based upon the truth of God that resulted in the ability to withstand the pressures of persecution without faltering, without wavering. So Christ, with his penetrating gaze, saw the nature of their works. He saw, as John Stott comments here, he says that Thyatira not only rivaled Ephesus in busy Christian service, but exhibited the love which Ephesus lacked, preserved the faith which was imperiled at Pergamum, and shared with Smyrna the virtue of patient endurance in tribulation. But Christ also made mention of the number of their deeds. That is to say, the later deeds of this church were in some way more in number than their their earlier ones. That as time progressed, their works had grown. That in these areas of love, in these areas of faith and and service and perseverance, that things were not slipping in this particular church, but things were actually getting better. Uh, In other words, this was a church that understood that the Christian life is a life of growth and development. And this was a church that was exceeding the works that it did at first. And in these ways, the church was exemplary. But that was not the complete picture. Because in that healthy body, a malignant cancer had begun to form. And sad to say, the great praise of verse 19 yields to censure in the following verse. And so next we have this criticism from Christ. The criticism from Christ, verse 20. But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. So this was the main problem. Jesus says, I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel. So this is very revealing because it shows the dangers to this particular church were not something that were coming from outside, but they were coming from something inside. That that the threats here were not external, but internal. That the dangers were not pagan deity or cruel uh, Caesar uh, worship, but a false prophetess among them. And notice it says the church was tolerating her. It's it's the Greek term uh, ephemi, which is sometimes translated as the verb to release, or or in some cases to forgive. Uh, It's even used to describe in some passages in the New Testament the idea of divorce. And it often conveys this the sense of leaving something or someone alone, or allowing someone to do something or allowing something to happen, or you might just say permitting them or permitting it. So here was the situation. There was some, there was some uh, prominent woman in this particular church, uh, not whose name was actually Jezebel, but who was like the infamous wife of Ahab in the Old Testament, that claimed in this case to be a prophetess and sought to mislead the people. That is to say that the character and, and in character and indeed, she was in many ways like Ahab's Phoenician wife who was notorious for her support of idolatry in Israel, who introduced Baal worship and, fi- and financially supported 850 false prophets of Baal. 
Uh, This woman in the Old Testament who was notorious for her adultery, who sought to carry the northern kingdom of Israel into the worship of false gods and to engage in associated immoralities and magical practices. So as her Old Testament prototype, this woman in the church at Thyatira was influential and she had characteristics of leadership and, and hard work and spiritual activity, but she was also corrupt like Jezebel. And note the touch of sarcasm as Jesus points out the fact that God did not call her a prophetess. Right? She, she called herself one. In other words, she was a, a self-appointed mouthpiece for God, which reminds us that not everyone who says that they speak for God actually speaks for God. So this is what happened in the life of this church. This woman, because of her alleged special revelations from God, believed that she was qualified to be an authoritative teacher in the church. And clearly, there were some in the church who agreed and wanted her to be a recognized leader. But that presents a problem, and the problem really is is twofold. Uh, The first was how she assumed this formal teaching capacity in the church, this ecclesiastical role that would have violated the plain teaching of 1 Timothy chapter 2, where Paul prohibits a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, and then goes on to detail male leadership in the very next chapter, in the first part of chapter 3, as it relates to, as we mentioned earlier, to the qualifications for, for elders and pastors. So that was one of the, the problems, which is the fact that this lady had come to this place where she had this kind of influence and authority in the church. And then the second problem is obvious, and it's the fact that this woman's teaching was leading people astray. Notice what it says. She calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words... She teaches, and by her teaching, she deceives. Now, how did she do that? Well, taking into account the dominance of these trade guilds in the Thyatiran culture, the particular thrust of her teaching was probably something like this. Since an idol has no real existence, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, that there's really no need as a Christian for you to hesitate to go along with the simple requirements of the trade guild and to participate in a common meal dedicated to some idol. In other words, her, her message to this church that was caught in this dilemma, right, where you had people most likely in that particular congregation that were working in these various industries and that were in part involved in these guilds. And so here this, this, this self-styled, self uh, proclaimed uh, prophetess comes along and says, I'll resolve this for you because there's no need for you to separate yourselves from these kinds of practices. Uh, there's no need to fear pagan immorality and sacrificial practices because men and women in whom the Spirit dwells know that the flesh cannot defile the Spirit. And by the way, I have this on the authority of God Himself because I am a prophetess. And so it was, it was likely some sort of, this, uh, you might say, some sort of a philosophical dualism. 
that it doesn't matter what you do with the material body because the material body is wicked anyway. It only matters what you do with the spiritual. And with this claim and with this teaching, this Jezebel-like woman had gained and was gaining quite a following. Nevertheless, she was ravaging the church and would be accountable for her sinful influence, which, which persisted for some time because of what Christ says in verse 21. He says, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. So she was warned, a warning that may have come from the Apostle John himself because of his position of authority among the churches in Asia. But she was warned and given opportunity probably many opportunities to repent, but up to this point had no disposition to change, no, no, no desire to amend her life, no, no desire to turn to Christ in faith and away from her misguided practices, specifically her fornication, which is the word porneia. This is that sort of general, all-encompassing term that includes all forms of sexual perversion. And so the, the, the New Testament uses this particular word as, 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 again, sort of an umbrella term to talk about all kinds of sexual deviations, um, premarital sex, homosexuality, adultery, bestiality, pornography, and so on. And because of her stubborn, unrepentant heart, Christ says, I will judge her. Now, how will he do that? Verse 22. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. So he says, I will throw her on a bed of sickness or the ESV says, I will throw her onto a sick bed. Now, the word sickness is not in the original text, but it literally reads, I will throw her into a bed, uh, which could be translated as bed or in some cases in the New Testament as a pallet or even a stretcher, so that the idea of sickness is implied, and that's why it's in most of the English translations, but the idea is likely even more severe than that. And the bed is sometimes emblematic of pestilence and death and even of eternal punishment or damnation, which makes more sense in light of what Christ says about those who were continually engaged in this activity with this woman. Jesus goes on to say that I will throw those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, and I will kill her children with pestilence, which could be the same group described in two different ways, those participating in her sins and also embracing her teaching and her ways who will be thrust into this period of unparalleled misery that John will go on to describe in chapters 6 down to in Revelation from chapter 6 through chapter 18, unless they repent, unless they repent of the works that have sprung from Jezebel's influence and, and influence that in, encouraged them to exercise the freedom to live in this licentious, uh, loose way. But if they do not, Christ will judge them as well. And then Christ says, All the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, 
and I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Which is an allusion to Jeremiah. You might be familiar with this. Jeremiah, uh, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 10. In verse 9 of Jeremiah 17, it says, The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? In verse 10, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. So Christ is the Lord. And according to Revelation chapter 2, verse 23, his dealings with this Jezebel-like woman in the church and her followers in the church will become a matter of public knowledge among the seven churches who on the basis of that knowledge will learn of Christ's omniscience and righteous judgment. That he, is, that he truly is the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and feet like gleaming bronze. That he is the one that searches the minds, which, 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 which is a word that refers literally to the, the kidneys, but metaphorically to the inner man, particularly man's will and, and his affections. And he's also the one who searches the hearts, which refers, when used alongside of this other term, to a person's thoughts. So this will be evident that Christ plumbs the depths of man's being, his wants and desires, his choices and his thoughts, every meditation, every fantasy, every fear, every emotion, every doubt, every deliberation, and every decision. And on the basis of what Christ finds, he will judge. And notice the personal nature of such a judgment. I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. Every each single individual and their outward acts that reflect their hearts, their inner life, their inner motives, and serve as the basis for his judgment. So think about this dynamic. Christ is so committed to exercising severe discipline with this church, and he does so. And one of the reasons why he does so is so the other churches will know that he is serious about holiness in the church. It's as if Jesus is saying, I've got to discipline Thyatira because Ephesus is watching. I can't let this go unchecked because Smyrna is watching. I have to deal with this sin because Pergamum is watching. If I don't judge Thyatira, then Ephesus and Smyrna and Pergamum will begin to live like this because it will send the wrong message, the message that immorality is okay. And that's exactly what's going on in the churches today. There are way too many people in the church today who need to be disciplined, not by the Lord, but by the members of the church itself. But because that's not happening, the church's life and testimony get weaker and weaker as professing Christians are discouraged by example from pursuing holiness, but encouraged to pamper and to tolerate their little pet sins, which over time tend to grow into something not so little and not so easy to root out. Now, from this criticism or censure from Christ, let's move on to the exhortation from Christ. And here, he turns his attention to a brighter side of the church's body, verse 24. 
But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan as they call them, I place no other burden on you. In other words, those of you who are in the church who have not been deceived by the cunning of Jezebel, which, by the way, Jesus knows perfectly how to divide between the righteous and the wicked, right? Christ can tell the difference. So so he's saying those of you who do not have this erroneous doctrine of hers and those of you who have not known the deep things of Satan, which simply refers to those things that this false group in the church claimed were beyond man's scrutiny or were hidden or concealed. So they had this sort of, you might say, this sort of esoteric knowledge, this knowledge for just a few, a secret knowledge, or perhaps a superior morality or a higher law, a higher standard, which was their way of claiming that they could indulge in idle feasts, including their immorality, without sinning, all the while looking down with scorn on their weaker fellow Christians." priding themselves in their knowledge and strength and proving the harmlessness of such participation, claiming that their actions would even help the weaker brethren overcome their unfounded scruples and be built up in knowledge and strength, and even going to the extreme of ridiculing the piety and the godliness of other Christians. But for those who have maintained purity from the defilement of Jezebel and her doctrine, Christ says, I place no other burden on you. And then verse 25, nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. Or to put it another way, to the faithful, I do not cast upon you anything worse or more than, you for, to, than for you to keep doing what you're already doing, namely, continuing to stand against her, to resist the pressure of Jezebel and her group to hold on to your Christian integrity, to hold on to your convictions, to hold on to your purity until I come. And then we have this promise to the overcomer, which actually comes before the command to hear and to heed, which is different from the first three letters. But in verse 26, he says, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end. Again, the overcomer is not a member of some special class of Christians distinguished by their spirituality or their, pa- or their power in contrast to other genuine Christians who are not overcomers. Uh, this designation is a description of what is normal and expected of every true follower of Christ. Therefore, the promise to follow is for all genuine believers to the one who overcomes and the same one who keeps the works of Christ or seeks to maintain an obedient life. And what is the promise? Well, actually, there are two of them. The first is the promise that guarantees that we will share the Messiah's victory over his enemies. Notice the end of verse 26. To him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. So so we will join Christ in destroying the nations that oppose him and rule with him in the coming kingdom, serving, you might say, as co-shepherds in a sense, co-disciplinarians with our Lord. And then he also promises that in that messianic kingdom, we will shine as stars. This is what I think is, is meant when Jesus says in verse 28, and I will give him the morning star. Could be that, He is saying that he will give him 
self to us because he is the bright, he is the bright morning star, according to Revelation twenty two sixteen, And in the future, we will have him in his fullness. But I believe it's simply referring to the glory that will follow the Messiah's conquest over his enemies. And very similar to the promise in Matthew thirteen forty three that states, Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And even back in Daniel chapter 12, verse 3, where the future privileges of the faithful are likened to the stars. Then finally, this familiar command to heed, verse 29, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is to say, pay special attention to this analysis of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Now, now what is the main takeaway for us this morning? Well, I think it's this. Every Lord's Day, we come together as a body for, for a variety of reasons. We, we gather to, to serve and to use our gifts for the building up of the saints. Uh, we gather to equip and to disciple. We, we come together to pray. We come together to, to worship by offering ourselves to the Lord. We, we come to worship by speaking to one another, Ephesians says, in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with our hearts to the Lord. Oh, we come worshiping by giving thanks, but we also worship the Lord by upholding the purity of the church. Because purity is the concern of God. God himself is pure. And we ought to be concerned about righteousness. We ought to be concerned about holiness and purity. Holiness of life and character. Because it is God's will. It is God's will that we do that. In fact, the, one of the most recent messages that Pastor Shane preached in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes this in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, "...for this is the will of God, your sanctification." That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. Just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification." So, he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Not only that, but it is the very purpose of the Father's election. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4, Just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. And it's the purpose of the death of Christ. Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Looking for the blessed hope. And the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Christ Jesus, who gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. And it's the purpose of the Spirit's indwelling, as it says there in that First Thessalonians 4 passage. In other words, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, the three persons of the one eternal Godhead, are united in their purpose to make us holy. And if God's purpose is to make us holy, then Satan is resolved to frustrate it. And Satan is having quite a bit of success with that in the church 
today. But the church is to be pure. This is the goal of our teaching, purity. This is the mark of an elder. This is the thing that young people are to pursue to counteract their youthfulness. According to 1 Timothy 4.12, Paul says, Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech, conduct, love, faith, and purity. Show yourself as an example of those who believe. This is what the women, young and old, should cultivate. So the church is to be pure. We are to protect the reputation of Christ and His church. And Jesus outlined a way for us to protect the purity of the church in Matthew 18, the process of church discipline, so that the whole church doesn't turn to compromise. And it's not a process that involves some sort of a secret group, uh, some sort of elite, a Christian team, or, or even an individual in the church whose job it is to go out and to, and to find sin in the church. That's not what this is about. It doesn't involve that. What it involves is dealing with personal sin, right? That's what church discipline involves. It just involves, listen, if, if you sin against someone, you go and you make it right, right? And if, and if you see another person's sin or if another person offends you, you deal with the sin and you deal with the offense. How do you do that? Well, the scriptures are very clear that if your brother sins, that you go and you show him his fault. How? You do that in private, right? So this isn't about, this isn't about some heavy-handed team of people coming and, and trying to, to root out all the sin in the church. This is as simple, folks, as if if I sin against you, then you need to come talk to me, right? If I don't recognize that, if I don't recognize that I've offended you or sinned against you, you need to come talk to me. And if you sin against me and if you offend me, I need to come have a conversation with you after I've given some time, right? Some time for you to recognize that and maybe come to me and confess that. It's just about dealing with personal sin. And Jesus just says there's a process, right? There's a process that a church goes through. That if you go to a brother or sister and they're in sin, or they've offended you, and they don't hear, they don't listen, right? Or basically, they dig their heels in and don't want to repent, then there, are, there is a time in which we bring in one or two people alongside of that process, right? To confirm the facts and to call that individual to repentance. And in some cases, the church has to be made aware of that, right? And the church has to get involved in that process. And yes, it happens that there's a time for an individual because of their stubbornness, because Christ gave them opportunity to repent, and they didn't want to repent, there's a time in which the church calls that individual to repentance, but because of their stubbornness, the church has to disfellowship. They have to disassociate from that individual. And the Lord says that's a loving thing to do, all right? That is a loving thing to do. So loving Christ and pursuing purity as a church are not opposites, right? Those things go together. And so the Lord gives us that process so that the entire church doesn't go the way of the church at Thyatira, right? And so there's this mutual oversight, if you want to call it that, mutual oversight in which we are caring for one another, we are looking out for one another, right? Because we want to not beat people over the head, right? Well, that's not the purpose of discipline, the purpose of discipline is restoration, right? We want to restore those who are caught in a trespass 
to a place of usefulness once again in the body of Christ. We want their testimony to be restored. We want their fellowship with Christ and the church to be restored. That is the ultimate goal of church discipline. And we need to be faithful to this call. Now, we don't know exactly how many in the church at Thyatira responded to Christ's warnings. Tragically, the church as a whole over time did not do that. They did not heed. They did not obey. History records that it fell to the Montanist heresy, a movement led by a false prophet who claimed continuing revelation from God apart from Scripture. And the church disappeared by the end of the second century. Very sad. But it could happen to any church. It could happen to any church that doesn't take sin seriously and doesn't place a premium on purity. Christ will judge sin in the church. Now, what about you personally? What about you personally? Are you tolerating sin in your own life? Because if we're doing that, folks, we, we need to launch a holy war against our own sin. Because if we don't, Christ will. So let the purging begin with me, right? Let it begin with me. Let it begin with my own heart, dealing with our own sin, getting the log out of our own eye so that we can be about this ministry of, of edifying one another, holding one another accountable, and striving for purity as the body of Christ. Let's stand for prayer. Father, what a, a needful insight that you've given to us in this letter, and we've only really just scratched the surface. Thank you for what we've seen in this little church because it does act as a deterrent to us in our own church. We want to be loving. We don't want to be like Ephesus and leave our first love either for you or for one another. But we also don't want to be like Thyatira and have some form of love that allows sin or a love that allows false teaching or a love that pushes purity or holiness aside. Lord, would you cause our church to be what you want it to be? And may we be a people of whom it is said, your deeds of late are greater than at first. With a love that serves and a faith that endures, but may we also be a church that doesn't wink at sin. Lord, help us to strive for those things and in these to strike that balance of love and holiness, love and righteousness, love and purity. By your Spirit, in Christ's name, amen.